Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother. Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Greetings, everybody, and welcome to today's Dead Pundit Society podcast. I am your host, as always, Adam Proctor. We're going to be talking about Brexit today. It is now March 1st, and you know what that means. The Brexit deadline is looming at the end of this very month, which is a horrifying prospect for many people, not only in Britain, but in Europe and across the entire world. I've been wanting to do an episode explicitly on Brexit for quite some time, but it is such a fast-evolving topic that it's kind of like trying to catch a tiger by the tail or hop onto a moving train, so to speak. And as I expected, I did this interview with George Hoare of the Full Brexit Project about a week and a half ago, and a number of events have developed since then. His intervention is still incredibly relevant, and uh, you're going to see that in just a couple of moments, but I wanted to catch people up to speed before we get to that specific interview. Prime Minister Theresa May has been unable to broker a deal that will pass muster in Brussels and in British Parliament. Not only has May been unable to win over the British Parliament, but she has been unable to cohere any kind of unity inside of her own Tory party on the matter. In the face of this inability to broker a deal at the 11th hour, we are now 28 days away from the Brexit deadline. Jeremy Corbyn and his Labour Party are discussing various options to put forward proposals for a second referendum in the wake of May's final offer. This, contrary to hemming and hawing on both sides of the aisle, will not be the classic, quote, people's vote, unquote. Rather, it will be a referendum on May's actual deal. It sounds to me like it'll be an up or down vote, putting May's deal before the British people, saying yay or nay, I do like this, I don't like this, and uh, moving along in accordance with that uh, vote. However, I think there are a number of people out there who are hoping that this referendum will take a different kind of shape. Of course, the Lib Dems and the Remainers inside of Labor are hoping that this will be a replay of the original Brexit vote. I think the hardcore Brexit types are hoping that this will not put Remain back on the table at all. Now, that remains to be seen. There's no way to know in advance which particular set of proposals will be adopted by the Labour Party or by the Parliament itself. So we'll just have to wait and see. But fortunately, the intervention by George Hoare that you're about to hear does not rely on those outcomes. It is a fantastic, evergreen, standalone appeal for a left Brexit that upholds the standards and ideals of socialist democracy. And whether you are in the Leave or Remain camp, I think you will be interested in the arguments that George Orr has to put forward. Before we get started with that, this is the second free episode of Dead Pundit Society that you're hearing this week, which means this episode is brought to you exclusively by the patrons of the Dead Pundit Society. Patrons of the show not only keep this thing going, but they are the lifeblood of this enterprise. We have just started a patron-only forum that is hosted on the Discourse app, and it, is, uh, it promises to be a thriving community. We already have a lot of really great discussions, debates. Uh, we're going to be sharing knowledge and networking people uh, so that they can connect their you know, intellectual pursuits with the kind of activist and socialist work that they're doing in the real world. And so we encourage folks, if you like this show, if you want to support this project, we cannot do it without the generous contributions of our patrons. 
So head over to www.patreon.com slash deadpundits and subscribe at one of the levels that we offer. We have a number of generous rewards. We try to pay back our patrons with additional content and uh, other intellectual pursuits, such as a book club that we're offering. We're doing a book of the month. And uh, there's a lot of other exciting things. So check that out. Support the show. We appreciate our patrons past and present. On with the show. ...of her statement. I've lost count of the number of times the Prime Minister has come to this House to explain a further delay. They say, Mr Speaker, history repeats itself. First time as tragedy, second time as farce. By the umpteenth time, it can only be described as grotesquely reckless. This is not dithering, it's a deliberate strategy to run down the clock. The Prime Minister is promising to achieve something she knows is not achievable and is stringing people along. So will she be straight with people? The withdrawal agreement is not being reopened. There is no attempt to get a unilateral exit on the backstop or a time limit. In Sharm el-Sheikh, the Prime Minister said, and I quote, a delay in this process doesn't deliver a decision in Parliament, it doesn't deliver a deal. I can only assume she was being self-critical. She so far promised a vote on a deal in December, January, February and now March, and only managed to put a vote once, in January, when it was comprehensively defeated. The Prime Minister continues to say that it's her deal or no deal. But this House has decisively rejected her deal and has clearly rejected no deal. It is the Prime Minister's obstinacy that is blocking a resolution. So if the House confirms that that opposition, then what is the Prime Minister's plan B? Welcome everybody to today's episode of Dead Planet Society. I'm your host, as always, Adam Proctor, and we are finally going to do today what I've been promising for the past, I don't know, hell, months maybe. We're going to talk about Brexit explicitly, in depth, in detail. I've been seeking uh, far and wide a guest that would be up to this task, and I believe that I have found the man for the job. Joining us today is Mr. George Hoare, co-host of Alpha Bunga Bunga podcast, member of the full Brexit team. Thanks so much for joining us on Dead Punnets, George. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, big, big fan. So happy to be here. The feeling is mutual. I love having fellow podcasters on here and we get to gush about each other for the first two minutes. So uh, we'll skip over that. We're both big fans of each other's work. And I uh, love what you guys do over there on Alpha Bunga Bunga. Uh, folks will know I had Alex on to uh, talk about Bolsonaro and Brazil. And if you guys out there have not heard of Alpha Bunga Bunga podcast, Well, now you have, and you have no excuse not to listen because it's a fantastic show. They talk about a lot of international issues. You know, you yourself, George, are located in Britain. Alex is now in Sao Paulo, Brazil. You have other contributors who sort of travel the planet uh, in (laughs) random odd places like South Africa and New York City. Yeah. So everybody tune into that. Talk to us a little bit about Alfa Bunga Bunga just to get us started. Uh, How long has that been going on? Who's involved and what kind of politics do you guys try to cover? Yeah, good uh, good question. So I think, so we started 2016, 2017. I really obviously should know this. Um, and yeah, the basic idea was we wanted to have a global politics podcast. We position it at the end of the end of history. So one of the key themes, one of the things that we want to look at is um, just all of the ways in which 
liberal politics has been completely unable to respond to the crisis of, of 2008 and the, the delayed political crises of particularly around 2016. And so, yeah, it's me, Alex, who you, who you mentioned, Phil Cunliffe, who's in Canterbury, and then Ben Fogel, our, our roving reporter from uh, wherever he can find an internet connection. Um, and yeah, I <laughs> think we've had, we, we have uh, similar sorts of guests, and I think we have a lot of guests who've been on both uh, t- of, of our podcasts. So, yeah, and I think we we were particularly, uh, we wanted to do a podcast that was not just about local politics and inward looking. So hopefully... Having said all that, Brexit, we can, we can talk about that and, and uh, relate it to the international context a bit. That's right. And as you mentioned aptly, uh, you position your podcast at the end of the end of history. I love that formulation, uh, which you're pointing to the kind of inability of not only elites, but at really anyone to resolve this crisis that we find ourselves in, which is a, a pretty great transition to Brexit. Talk to us a little bit about this, the full Brexit group that you yourself are a part of. Who comprises that group? And uh, why did you guys come about? Yeah, so the full Brexit, we're basically a group of academics. So um, politics, political theory, history, law, not a political party. So we don't have a single view. And the aim really is to put forward a series of analyses and proposals around Brexit, which try to articulate the left case for leave. This is essentially what we're interested in doing. Um, It's particularly reflecting some of the the really important arguments around democracy, but also looking a little bit deeper. So there's been some analyses of of the parliamentary chaos around Brexit, which I'm sure we'll talk about, some of the analogies between the EU and empire, some proposals, for example, the first one that we had. So these more concrete policy proposals, um, EU nationals should get British citizenship. There's something which we, which, which we believe, which we have tried to come up with some arguments for, um, arguments around concrete solutions to the Irish border problem, um, federal constitution, um, how to extend public ownership in the context of Brexit. So it's really, you know, trying to come up with these these intellectual resources, hopefully to inform the labour movement and and people who might put themselves on the left and feel a little bit that the current arguments on the left are all very strongly remain. So that's the, uh, I guess, the two minute summary of the full Brexit. Excellent. So my audience is all over the world. Uh, I'd say about one-fourth to one-fifth of the listens we get here on DPS are international outside of the U.S. But uh, again, the vast majority are American. And so that being the case, may not or almost certainly will not be totally up to speed about just what the hell is going on with Brexit. So give us a, give us a timeline. You've given us a crash course on the full Brexit uh, project Give us a crash course on Brexit. Maybe talk to us a little <laughs> bit about the timeline. Uh, you know, not only what has gone down over the past few years, but what looks uh, imminent in the in the coming months as well. Yeah, well, I mean, it's really it feels like it's all happening. Um, I think Lenin said there are um, years yeah. where nothing happens, and then weeks where years where decades seem to happen, that's and that's right. basically that's basically Brexit. I mean. It was a crashing end to capitalist realism, perhaps you could put it. It was, you know, suddenly this alternative on the on the scene. And just to, to maybe go through some of the, the the dates. I mean, history is all about dates, of course. Um, so, twenty third of June, twenty sixteen, we had a referendum. Everyone assumed that the status quo that Remain would uh, would win, but in fact, it didn't. A surprisingly high turnout, seventy two percent, saw a fifty two forty eight victory for. 
for leave. So that was a pretty tremendous shock to, I think, the entire political class. One of the most um, surprising political events in, in my lifetime. I didn't didn't really see it coming. The media was so heavily um, certain that, that Remain would win. But to move, move forward a little bit, then another really important date was 29th of March 2017. So this was when Article 50 was invoked. So we are now going to be leaving the, the EU on the 29th of March 2019 at 11pm. So this is, this is the default. And I think it's just important to have that in, in the background because essentially that started the clock ticking. And in hindsight, maybe it was a bit of a trap. It put a deadline on things. It constrained the UK. It, it meant that we essentially were in a weaker negotiating position. But we can, we can come to this, this later. Then, <laughs> you know, as I said, there was no possibility that Leave could, could win. Nobody expected it. The entire political class wanted to disavow themselves of the responsibility to sort this out. And so they threw it to the people. We had a general election on the 8th of June 2017 after David Cameron resigned. And uh, yeah, it's impo- I, I think important just to, to frame this. Both, part, both of the two major parties, the Conservatives and Labour, stood on manifestos to respect the referendum result. And we saw a really interesting result. I think there was a massive, and I'm sure many of your listeners are pretty familiar with this, there was a massive surge in enthusiasm for Labour. So people got behind Corbyn, there was this massively popular manifesto, Theresa May had called this election being sure she was going to wipe Labour off the map. But in fact, Labour gained 30 seats and the the Tories lost 13. And Labour and, but something which is often, I think, glossed over, both Labour and Conservatives increased their vote share, primarily at the expense of UKIP. So this single issue party on the right, which got completely wiped out. So it lost, it, it lost, basically, it's, it's over now. So then another couple of, of dates, and I, you know, I could go on for, for the whole time that we're recording almost <laughs> on this uh, timeline. Right. So to bring it up to this, to 2019. So we had um, Theresa May in between the, the general election and now has been politicking, has been negotiating with Brussels, hasn't really been getting anywhere. Um, and she came up with this deal, which everybody hated and subsequently got rejected by the British Parliament by 230 votes, which is the largest defeat for a sitting government in history. Yet she's still in charge of the Conservative Party. So this explains some of the lack of leadership or wanting to take responsibility for this. Um, and even just on Monday, so we're recording this on Wednesday the 20th, we have the independent group. So we have a new force in British politics. Wow. Um, <laughs> force in, uh, you know, what do they call it? Scare quotes, what we call them <laughs> over here in the United States, inverted commas, yeah. uh, perhaps. Invert- extremely inverted commas um yeah so the the gang of seven it's not just a gang of four they've they've improved well, now they're eight that. i do believe they're eight now if well, i woke up to news this morning it seems it's 11 now actually so there's it's 11 uh, ah, it's, yes. it's even more it's becoming more farcical by the minute yeah. it's hard to keep up by the time this episode drops and it could be for you know just for the listeners sake of course the listeners will know what date it is uh, today that they're listening to this but we're, we're again recording this on the 20th so many things uh, can and undoubtedly will happen by the time this uh, drops. So what, what do you think the prospects are there with this so-called independent group? Well, it's, it's a good question what the effect is going to be on the likelihood of Brexit. So you have these, um, so they're primarily pro a people's vote. So this is the, the, the branding of the, of the second referendum. You have eight Labour uh, politicians who have cited anti-Semitism in, in the Labour Party as their reason for leaving, joined by three Conservative 
um, parliamentarians. And it seems like actually the one possible effect of this will be to increase the probability of a no deal Brexit, because this is the group which nominally is supposed to show the the initiative or the leadership around um, extending Article 50, which is a key stage in the movement towards a second referendum. And it seems like they will not have the numbers by any stretch of the imagination to to force any sort of process that would lead to Article 50 being extended. And another effect is going to be Labour and Conservatives will both likely harden in their their positions, which will be, as I said, they're both elected on manifestos to to respect the referendum result. Just one point, just one dig that really have to get in there against the uh, the independent group. So they're all for a people's vote, but they are refusing steadfastly to to have by elections to to let their their constituents decide whether they want them anymore. So that's right. Yeah, they love democracy just, so long as it doesn't apply to their prospects of their own political futures. Right? Yeah, absolutely. They're they're basically careerists who've had their career prospects halted, and now they're very they're very mad. So they're they're leaving. Um, but there's I think there's maybe a serious point under here as well, which is that they're a symptom of basically a longer term and, and structural and very deep transformation of British politics, um, which is essentially, and we can maybe move on to talking about this, some of the effects of, of EU integration, which see a part of a dynamic, which is all based around the, the distancing between the people and, their, and, and the representatives. So you get such <laughs> morbid symptoms as, as these 11 um, emerging in this context. Yeah. So those, I think those are the, the main dates. 29th of March, um, 2019 at 11 p.m. This is going to be uh, the, the time when uh, both Leavers and Remainers, I think, will will be having a drink, but maybe for different reasons, unless, of course, something something changes in the meantime. That's right. Part of the, the appeal, the strength of the Remainers, the so-called people's vote advocates, is to paint uh, that that deadline as this apocalyptic prospect on the horizon, right? One wherein you know, it'll cause devastation and chaos of which uh, we haven't yet seen. Uh, what's your position on that? Just to kind of skip ahead and then we'll peel it back in just a second. But what's your position on that? Do you think that a no deal Brexit would be this apocalyptic nightmare that the remainers are painting? So the first thing to say, which is uh, perhaps a little bit facetious, is some of this really smacks of Y2Kism. It's like, People have been selling Brexit boxes with um, dried food and bottled. I'm not. I'm not joking. Unfortunately, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I've been selling these Brexit boxes, dried food and bottled bottle water to get people through this. The you know the, the 30th of March catastrophe, the Brexageddon. Um and I think that's you know it's it's pretty clearly part of Project Fear, which is actually a term that the right mainly use. Um, and it's completely consistent, though. So there was um, a poll done after the referendum result, which found that the number one reason that people voted Remain was economic risk. So it's very consistent that Remain has lent heavily on a, on a project fear type construction. But what's I mean, what's what's my take? I think it won't be a big change. It'll be an anticlimax if we do have a, a no deal Brexit. But with one fairly large caveat that the preparation that the British state has made around a no-deal Brexit has been absolutely pitiful. Um, it's primarily a set of technical problems. And so you would expect this uh, this former imperial power with this um, highly credentialized civil service to be able to produce a set of technical solutions to avoid 
various roads in the south of England becoming becoming lorry car parks because there's uh, certain forms that need to fill in be filled in that haven't been um, administered in in the right way. So I think the important point to make though is that there shouldn't be this shouldn't be used as a as a essentially a reason to blackmail either either people or, or parliamentarians into accepting accepting the status quo which which means essentially it's a second referendum and a, and a vote to remain again i'm jumping forward when i said i was going to peel back but uh, we'll do that in just a moment but do you feel <laughs> always I, I, forward yeah always forward comrade uh, you know one of the things that you you brought up there that just really resonated with me in in the way that uh, you know I'm I'm sort of trying to wage a certain kind of political struggle here in the United States my, myself and my co-thinkers and comrades uh, over here is that you know one of the difficulties is that we're taking up uh, criticisms of the status quo criticisms of existing so-called progressive enlightened liberal forces these criticisms that are oftentimes only uh, vocalized in essence, by the right. And so uh, how do you therefore take up these Brexit talking points? As you mentioned, um, this uh, project fear, which is something that comes from the right and you know, sort of wield that in a more principled left direction. Sort of. In a sense, you're wresting the ideological power away from the right and wielding it in a much more principled materialist leftward direction. Now, how do you go about doing that? Well, that's a really good question and essentially one of the big strategic questions facing the British left. And I think there's a number of points to make here. Perhaps the first is that it's it's quite extraordinary how the British left has become quite so pro-EU. The shift from the position, um, so we had a referendum in, in 1975 um, and the, the British left at that, at that point was much more um, either ambivalent or or just uh, eurosceptic um and of course you can distinguish the europe and, and the eu and i think it's important to do that but by the time of the 2016 referendum the left had uh, the british left had entirely allied with the status quo um and i think it's it, there's a, a piece of analysis up on on the um the full Brexit website which i would really highly recommend um, by Phil Cunliffe, who's also one of the the co-hosts of Alpha Bunga Bunga, where he talks about where I mean where this is a the world turned upside down. This is a phrase from the English Revolution. We had this uh, we had this bourgeois revolution in in the mid seventeenth century, um, but yeah, you have the conservatives. They're the ones who are pushing for change. There, then you have the left who are saying no. We need to we need to defend what we've got. We need to we need to stick with with the way things are because. The only future that we can see is a is a hard Brexit or a Singapore style Brexit or a free trade haven of, of some sort. So it really is the, the the stage is set for a realignment of British politics in a in a in a fundamental way. And I mean, this is I'm not saying that the independent group is this realignment of British politics. This is more of a disintegration of British politics than a than a realignment. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the first point to make. That yes, the that within the argument or within the debates prior to the referendum and, and afterwards as well, the left, if you, if you have a quadrant, if you have like a quadrant or like four, sorry, four quadrants, left leave, left remain, right leave, right remain, the left leave position was, was not, um, was basically absent from the debate. The, 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 the narrative that the British left has around Brexit at the moment is that it is a right wing project. And this is why people like Paul Mason are, are extremely, exercised by any left leave argument because they say well no it's going to lead to fascism it's going to lead to to all to all these things so 
Yeah, I mean, it's not a it's not an easy um, argument to make in the context of of the current orientation of the British left. Right. So in many senses, you know, that is really the the thrust. That is the question itself, right? So we'll get to try to addressing that question, uh, putting some some real content on the scaffolding of that argument mm. throughout the course of the rest of the interview. So let's backtrack now. How did you vote, sir? Did you vote leave or remain? <laughs> so I don't like to answer this question, um, <laughs> not because I'm ashamed of how I voted and yep. knew how I was going to vote, um, and not because I've changed my mind. Um, I think I think your listeners will be you know pretty able to guess, but the reason is that essentially it has become a, a debate that's constructed in in quite stark identity terms. So if you're chatting with colleagues or friends or acquaintances, as soon as you say how did you vote in this binary referendum, it's bang the the that you can't continue with a political argument at that point it's the rem- somebody who voted remain will see themselves as cosmopolitan and internationalist and somebody who voted leave they will see as a little englander or or, a, or an imperial um not nostalgia fan or a, or a xenophobe or a racist or anything like this a hillbilly so, with shit on his shoes as we would say in the well, united states yeah it's, it's a little bit like that but there are also other elements to it i mean leave voters are also seen as, as self-destructive as seen as actually maybe this is covered by by your point as well though as very ignorant as swayed by numbers on on buses there's a famous um campaign ad 350 million could go to the nhs if, if you vote to leave so as soon as you say how you voted it shuts yeah. down debate yeah. well, there are quite a few people who are now in favor of a left exit of some kind who did vote to remain. And I said, you know, I think that's one of the things that one of the points that you didn't quite get to, but I'm sure you probably agree with this, is that it's almost at this point, it's a moot point because the terms of the debate now are are different uh, than they even were then. Um, And so, you know, it's it's almost just kind of a, for me, it's a historical curiosity, not not a litmus test, I should say. Yeah, I think there isn't isn't a point here around um, some people saying, well, actually, it's an artifact. It's an artifact of its time. It's an artifact of, of of the campaign. So we actually don't need to do anything about the um, the referendum result because, of course, people can change their minds. And I think this is a this is a very problematic argument because it essentially equates democracy with with voting. So if you have another vote, it's more democracy. If you have ten votes, isn't that democracy times ten or to the power of ten or whatever? But actually, one thing which I think has been revealed is how. F- you often see, and this is this is a point that I've I've, I've made previously, the the left have really vacated the ter- the terrain of democracy and allowed a number of quite strange actors, um, Douglas Carswell qu- quoting the Levellers, so quoting these radical English revolutionaries from the 17th century, um, to basically say we defend democracy. Democracy is about issuing instruction to your representatives and them being implemented. It's not just about the process of voting. So it really is, um, it's important to, 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 to move beyond the identity debate, but it's also important to realize that, and you know, this, I guess is one takeaway from the timeline. We had this vote in 2016 and we still haven't implemented it yet. This is just demonstrates the, the weakness and the disorganization of, of our political class. That's right. This argument that you've referred to in the British context is almost always wielded in the United States 
as an attempt to shut down debate and i.e. therefore democracy. This argument, uh, well, if you didn't vote for Hillary Clinton, then you're somehow to blame for Trump. And now you know, I'm somewhat sympathetic of, of – I would have been somewhat sympathetic to that strategy going forward in 2016. I would have rather seen people vote strategically uh, to stave off the worst aspects of the far right. Uh, but but in, in hindsight, it's just a way of sort of shutting down debate because there's no question that the, you know Clinton was responsible for her own loss, not the people who failed to vote for her. It's her responsibility to inspire people uh, to follow her, not fight, you know we're not obligated to, to any of these politicians. Uh, so it's you're quite right to point to that. Uh, you know, these are faux democratic arguments. Yeah, explain to us. What is Article 50? You mentioned that Article 50 was triggered. It's kind of this deadline, this apocalyptic D-Day, depending on your uh, your uh, look of your view of things. Yeah. Um, there's much talk now about extending Article 50. So talk to us about what is it and how might it be extended and what's the likelihood that, that something like that will be possible? Yeah. So I guess the, the, the important context here is that the EU is, um, is a, an institution which has very strong integrative mechanisms um, of, of various sorts but if you look on the other side how do you actually leave this this organization the legislation is is extremely thin it's it's very underspecified um which is 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 surprising but also perhaps revealing and, and, and important um and essentially what it is i think i referred to this this earlier it's, it, it's the ticking clock so it's the it's the agreement that two years after the, the 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 triggering of this of this bit of legislation by the British Parliament, we are um, it's going to be passed into law that we will not be a member of the the European Union anymore. So that's the 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 default option. And if you're talking about extending it, well, I think the 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 technical aspects of it that it would require a require a bill, it would require a voting into law by our leg by our um by our parliament um that's that's an important aspect but the political context is in some ways more important what it would require is the political class to say we have been unable to solve this problem so one particularly apt analogy that, that i've heard about this is essentially the, the british political class are student politicians so this is how they were this is how they were raised or socialized politically this is their mode of operation and as with every student what happens when this deadline is is approaching they ask for an extension so they ask for a, a, an essay extension and that's and that's sort of what article 50 is it's a chance to potentially go back to the electorate and say what do you want go back to to brussels although i don't think this is very likely that they would change things materially and and come up with a new potential solution so really it's um it's it's an important step in in a in a second referendum i think that's important to note because that delay that additional period of solving this this problem that the polity have have, have given to to their representatives leads to the idea that okay we, we can't solve this as, as as the political class we're too we're too divided let's have another let's have another referendum let's throw it back to the people so you as both a full brexiteer and a former instructor, a former university instructor, uh, academic yourself, are well suited to answer this question. Should the May government go back to Brussels and say, hey, teacher, the dog ate my Brexit, <laughs> would they be likely to grant an extension? 
on Article 50? Or is it more like uh, the Hotel California where you can uh, check out, but you can never leave? Uh, well, th- thanks for referencing the title yeah. of our of our uh, episode on, on this, which is... Yeah. Absolutely. The EU is a Hotel California you can check out, but can you actually ever leave? Um, I, I was shocked that you hadn't mentioned that yet because it's such a wonderful framing of Brexit. People should check out that episode of Alfie Bunga Bunga, by the yeah. way. I'll try to link um, to it in the show notes. Well, I think the it's with a lot of the, and I'm not saying this is what, what you're doing, of course, but with a lot of this discussions, it's almost people miss the, the, the woods for the trees. So it's what art, what an extension of Article 50 or, or what a second referendum would the effect that it, it would have it would be absolutely catastrophic for anybody who has any semblance of support for democracy um why because it essentially means that and the eu has a has a history of of doing this um it means that if you don't vote correctly you're asked to, you're asked to vote again i mean what could be more depoliticizing than the the confirmation of the idea that your vote doesn't count that actually politicians are, are removed, that it's something else than human life, as, as Blake put it, that that's what parliamentary politics is. But I think another important point to make is that if we were to have a second referendum, what, what effect would this have on on the far right, which currently is a complete non-entity um, in, in British politics? You had a rally in December, Tommy Robinson, which I think your listeners might not even have heard of. He's an absolute no-mark, um, like, yeah, um, Stephen yeah. Yaxley Lennon, as I uh, prefer, as we often prefer to call him, yeah. Tommy Robinson, virulent racist, uh, wife batterer, and just all around, uh, you know, horrible human being, uh, who is uh, often championed as is kind of like the Richard Spencer of the far right in the UK of a sort. Uh, if Richard Spencer sort of tried to make his name, you know, getting in street brawls rather than you know, I don't know, playing the lead role. And you know, rent back in the nineties or something. I don't know. I think Richard Spencer was in a bit of a street brawl, although it was just somebody punching him. It was it was a bit one sided. <laughs> um, yeah, but yeah. no, the, the, yeah. So Tommy Robinson managed to get out literally dozens of people. The, the but the, the problem that the British left has at the moment is that there's some people who who imagine fascism is just around the corner and see this as the the eminent threat. And so there was a counter demonstration when when Robinson got his very few small number of of mates on on the street in in december um but second referendum that gives ammunition to the far right unequivocally because it it, it is again this this it's so easy to spin into a narrative that the political class won't listen to you you need to you need to take you need to consider extra parliamentary violent means which lead which lead to fascism or more generally right populist parties can appeal to the sentiment we're not being listened to so i think i think it's important to be really wary about the political meaning of article 50 beyond the um technical meaning which is essentially a a a granting of more time which the eu would would certainly give um and the ecj has said um has has basically said as much in 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 a ruling which which they gave so it's it's a real uh, something which any which the left and and I hope all of your listeners will, will, will think to be uh, four square against. One of my favorite aspects of the full Brexit group is the way in which you guys take these arguments and these policies very seriously. And you work them out very quite systematically on your website. And even upon opening the site for the first time uh, that I did some months ago, 
you know, not being quite sure even who was behind this. I actually wasn't even sure that you, I wasn't even sure that you were a part of it or whomever hadn't looked at the about section, wherein you see the kind of uh, people who are involved in the projects, uh, the groups of academics and so on who have signed off on this. But what you notice immediately is that it's a very serious approach to uh, the policies and the proposals, and you give kind of step-by-step uh, responses and analyses to all of the various que- questions uh, that uh, a Brexit uh, raises. So let's go over some of those uh, piece by piece. I know you, you you yourself did not contribute to all of them, so I, I don't want to um, burden you with laying out other people's arguments. But on the analysis section, you know, you lay out. I mean, hell, I'm scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. Twenty two <laughs> topics. Uh, that that you and your collective try to address when it comes to the Brexit ordeal. These things ra- uh, range from you know workers' rights inside and outside the EU to the immigration question to the question of why does the British left love the EU? Why is Brexit essential for economic renewal? Why labor should embrace Brexit? Questions about popular sovereignty. And, uh, and and those types of things, we certainly cannot go through all of those. Listeners should check out the website for yourself and look at all of these policy papers. They're, they're relatively short and very digestible. But there are a couple things here that we can kind of bottom feed with uh, to get going. And one of the statements I really enjoyed was trying to reframe this question of taking back control. So talk to us about this, the, the way, the kind of left perspective of the impulse to take back control through this Brexit vote in 2016 and how we should interpret this coming from uh, the working class. Yeah, I think this is a really important um, theoretical contribution that we, we attempt to make, which is around popular sovereignty. So the Leave campaign for the referendum in, in 2016 was incredibly successful in framing it as an issue of taking back control, which I think actually misrepresents the EU as this super state, which is completely dominating every aspect of of people's lives. But what it did appeal to, and the reason why it resonated, um, and there's an HBO documentary which um, is recommended to to watch on this, and obviously doesn't get everything right, but it captures some key points, was that people felt a loss of of control over their lives, a loss of, of, of sovereignty. And I think this is really important to say this is a socialist, this should be a socialist terrain. This is this is somewhere we can argue because what is socialism? It is just democracy. It's extending democracy to the, to the economic sphere. And I think this is something which in various different ways, a lot of the contributors around the full Brexit have tried to articulate and have tried to say, well, actually taking back control is a, is a slogan which corresponds to a real, um, a real felt need that people didn't have democratic control over their workplaces, over their lives. They felt a very real gap between themselves and their representatives. So I think this is, you know, leads on to one of the, the key um, sort of concepts that we, we try and um, operationalize and, and try and think through. And this is Peter Mayer's idea of, of essentially the politics of the void. So in his um, Ruling the Void, which is a fantastic book, so it's, out, it's on first. So I should be on commission. I recommend this this book so much. Yeah. Um, the, so yeah, Ruling the Void, The Hollowing of Western Democracy. Essentially, Peter Mayer, who was sadly passed away, an empirical political scientist, 
what he does is he looks at Western Europe and particularly since the 70s traces the the striking uh, reduction in um, party membership, in trade union membership, in voter turnout. And he essentially comes to the to the empirical conclusion, and this is already in, in early 2010s, or actually late late noughties, this uh, New Left Review paper which preceded the book came out, that there's a real question as to whether we're a sovereign people. If we are not voting, if we're not part of the collective representative institutions that make up political conflict, make up I- that, that centre and structure ideological conflict, then are we really are we really governing as a people and i think i think there's there's a an impo- another another point to make here which is around the a, a corollary of this um in democratic theory or in political theory so at the same time that you had the hollowing out in terms of the massive reduction in the bases of mass participation in politics you had a shift in the understanding of what democracy is and I would characterize this, and again, not everyone in the full Brexit shares this, as the move from a liberal concept of democracy, sorry, from a socialist concept of democracy, or one which includes liberal and socialist parts, to a purely liberal one. And what do I mean by that? Essentially, democracy having an element of, of popular sovereignty, of mass participation, of being powered by the people, in addition to having checks and balances, having institutions. You see this being completely, really, really shifting. And instead, by the by the 90s, quite strikingly, in democracy, you have a flourish in democratic theory within political theory, you have a striking flourishing of, of ideas around deliberative democracy, sortition, so by lots and, and, and human rights discourse as the grounds and the content of what democracy is. So I think it's important to trace these things both empirically and in, in theory. And obviously, the material reality determines the, the ideas. But yeah, take, so taking back control is essentially the uh, kind of a, a nugget or uh, something which contains all of these ideas, which which we try to defend from a, from at least in my case from a socialist perspective, saying socialism and democracy are two things which need to be reattached to each other. Fascinating, democracy of a certain sort, the popular you know intervention of the masses rather than this Im- imperative to vote and be accountable to one's vote in this very kind of. Um yeah. Full democratic sense that we broke down just a little bit ago. Yeah, and I think it's, you know, to go back to the independent group, it's just incredible that they don't feel the need to to be accountable to their constituents. They don't feel the need to have a have, have a by-election, these representatives, because they don't see in what they do a notion of representation. And that is where class-based mass politics has its core. And without the political party, which of course Britain is a a strange case um, with the rise of Corbyn without the political party as that catalyzing factor you just left with democracy as checks and balances and, and a very legalistic framing which of course feeds into technocratic approaches to government right right they feel entitled to their positions they don't they see it in no way as a representative uh, representative you know relationship in society it's uh, it's appalling so let's move forward here. What speaking of these uh, technocratic neoliberal hacks, what is the nature of the EU? You talked about this a little bit by way of refuting the kind of right-wing populist understanding of these transnational amorphous bodies. Mm. Uh, so what is the nature of the EU? What's the balance of class and national forces? How do you conceptualize the way that the European Union uh, has transformed 
Europe over the past uh, few decades? Yeah. So, I mean, that's obviously a massive question. The first, but uh, you know, that's, that's what we're, that's what we're here to discuss these, these massive questions. And it's a, it's a very, yeah, very important one. Of course, I would say there are, there are two main sorts of answers to this. One is the economic account given by Kostas Lapovitsas, who's a full Brexit co-founder in his book, The Left Case Against the EU. There he looks at essentially how, particularly how the Eurozone has led to what he calls German conditional hegemony. So essentially the germ like who benefits from the eu in an in an economic sense is german export capital why because the the euro um, means that they are able to essentially produce massive amounts of, of of goods particularly industrial goods for exporting and they're extremely competitive internationally so they end up with a balance of of payment surplus which is just completely anomalous within the within the eu and i think that's an important element of it but one other thing which I think is more often overlooked than the economic analysis, although it would be good to have more class analysis from economists of, of the EU, is this idea of member state theory. So I think this is one of the big concepts that, that it's important to grapple with when looking at the EU. And this is that the the EU is not a it's not a super state, which is crushing all all resistance, but it's also not it's not neutral. Um and it's not neutral because it has a profound effect on domestic democratic politics this is the idea that eu integration is best understood as a process of trait of state transformation and essentially what i mean by that is that it affects the capacities of 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 the of the state and it affects the orientation and the ways of doing things of the political class so the eu becomes a source of legitimacy for political decisions and it becomes a, a, an arena in which national elites come to arrive at consensual political outcomes and it just exacerbates and it feeds into that dynamic i talked about earlier that the idea of the hollowing of western democracy because it enables elites and political representatives to distance themselves from from their constituents to distance themselves from domestic contestation so the whole effect of this transition from a a nation state to a member state, which Chris Bickerton, who's another full Brexit co-founder, has has looked at, is that essentially you you see the um, it's an inex- it's explanatory. You see its effects in the parliamentary chaos that we have that we've talked about already in this in in this discussion. We see it in the weakness of, of the British state to to plan for a No Deal Brexit because. This is what's happened over the past, particularly in an accelerated way over the last 15 years, is politics has reoriented itself from the national level to the EU level. And this, there's a whole, a whole set of, um, of, of consequences of this. But this is something we're trying to, uh, I guess, the Fulbrights are trying to apply to the current moment and our analysis of it. Well, this state theory stuff is uh, good, solid material that uh, my audience should be interested in. People should check out some of Christopher Bickerton's work on the full Brexit website. Again, I'll be linking to that in the show notes. People should check that out to talk about it in more detail. Let's just kind of talk about some general questions because there's so, you know, it's hard to know where to go next with this. One of the most kind of uh, thought-provoking observations that have been made on on my show thus far about Brexit uh, came from Leo Panitch. And the way he sort of framed this, while remaining somewhat agnostic on, you know, the politics of how to move forward, although he's very much in favor of the the latest labor manifesto, which 
hedges quite a bit, probably hedges quite a bit more than what you're comfortable with. But ultimately, I think is very much in favor of preparing for something like a left Brexit. And it's certainly absolutely um, unapologetically, I should say, uh, committed to adhering to the, you know, the results of the vote. Well, that being said, Panitch offers this provocation that whether there is a Brexit or not, and no matter what that ends up looking like, Britain will not be able to free itself from Europe because Europe is not a designation that's sort of uh, achieved by some kind of legal title or, you know, uh, some kind of, you know, kind of superficial relationship. It's, it's, uh, it's, that relationship is, is deep and, you know, it's deep seated in the class, in the balance of class and political forces inside of not only just Europe, but inside uh, kind of the, across the world economy. And so, I mean, I think that one of the things that, that the left, should, the way that the left should frame this, no matter what side you fall, which side you fall on in this argument, is that this is going to be a, a relatively intractable issue going forward, no matter which way the chips fall. What's your position on that? Do you agree with Panitch's assessment? And how, how do the, the full Brexiteers kind of uh, conceptualize this ongoing dilemma? Well, I think it's a good provocation to the extent that we don't know what the process of leaving the EU looks like. We know that the process of uh, the process of joining, the process of integration, is slow and controlled, and it takes a long time. Um, so it's an interesting experiment to a certain extent, and something which I think the rest of the European left are looking at very eagerly to see really what does leaving the EU. Um, actually look like and i think there's you know there's a whole set of reasons why it's 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 not the end of a political process brexit it's it's the beginning it's the beginning of a essentially a, a new political process where there we have more control over the decisions that that affect our lives which as a socialist i i welcome and i mean i guess to to be honest in terms of what we should want or what we should do I can't I can't be um I guess as calm about whether Brexit happens or not because for me the, the the to bring it back to democracy again that is the key the key issue the fact that the EU has a, a democratic deficit that's enough of a reason for for me not to not to want to be a part of it um but I think that the provocation then really hits home when you think right okay this and we try to argue this through in in the full Brexit the the process of leaving the EU has to be part of a deeper democratic renewal, which which the UK urgently needs. So we still have a House of Lords, which is, um, yeah, which is a uh, yeah an embarrassment. Uh, we still have a monarchy, which you might be able to guess which way I I lean on that one. There's all sorts of things that that should and could have become open, and it's questionable as to whether this option still exists for the left to really say. Right. If we're talking about the sorts of structures of the institutions that govern our our lives, then Brexit is as is of a piece with House of Lords reform, or abolition, and a, and a whole load of um, of other things. But yeah, I mean that the Europe isn't isn't going away. I mean, and that's what another reason why I think No Deal, you know, catastrophism is 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 over overwrought because it's not like the next day. Europe's going to be there's going to be a a big um division but uh, across the channel between the UK and 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 Europe. So yeah, 
it's it's the beginning of of something if we can get through to uh to to, to leaving then the the real struggle for socialism <laughs> continues it's quite silly knowing anything about uh, kind of capitalism historically and logically and otherwise is that it's, it's absurd to believe that somehow german capitalists will no longer be interested in you know uh, british markets it's you know as though their money doesn't spend there any longer, so they're just going to go elsewhere. As the, as though there is an elsewhere, right? Capital will spread its tentacles into anywhere and everywhere that it possibly can. And so, to to expect that British will suddenly be totally be marooned from you know from global capitalism is is just well, silly. I mean, that's there. There is yeah. There is a. It is worth saying this though, because I think some people on the right do want this there is a there is a um a segment of 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 pro brexit conservative conservatism which is looking to looking inwards i think it's not a particularly significant one but it's it's not completely absent from the debate that some people some vocal people would say well yeah actually we want to we don't want any more people coming into this country we don't want any more goods or services and that uh, again is 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 a very strange position because it it flies in the face of of the reality of 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 capitalism and the the interrelation of the national and the international that yeah i mean you're not going to get very far by just putting your fingers in your ears and saying we don't want to we don't want europe anywhere near us anymore right and there's a sense in which that that political economic project those aspirations are destined to fail in the long term, but there's no question they can do a significant amount of damage via the kind of uh, you know street violence and racist policies that might be implemented uh, in, in the short term. And you know, I think elements of the Remain camp rightly point to that possibility, but the Remainers don't have the resources at their disposal to actually end up avoiding. Well, it's it's yeah. I mean, it's it's a question of what's your alternative policy platform. I mean. Clearly, there's a there's a majority of support for, for for Brexit, so the left, by turning its back on Brexit, is missing an opportunity to to gain an electoral majority and and implement the alternative. So let's talk about those policies. We've been remarkably silent on the Labour Party and Corbyn and McDonnell. And I t- I've done this on purpose. I tend to bend the stick far too uh, severely in the direction of the Labour Party and the various personnel and the policies when I do talk about Brexit on the show. So I wanted to give us an opportunity to kind of let it breathe and let the discussion go elsewhere uh, for the for a time. But now let's focus back in on this Labour manifesto, which is a, is a very Janus-faced project, you might say, which very much represents the state of the Labour Party right now, both in terms of its class orientation and its personnel. Talk to talk to me about your perspective on on the Labour Party as it exists right now, and 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 how they will be able to go forward with the contradictions that exist inside of them. Well, that's the point. It is a difficult situation that they're in because the leadership, Corbyn and McDonnell, they're in the Benite tradition of of Euroscepticism, which previously and prior to New Labour, which we're still in the shadow of to a certain extent. Was was flourishing within within labour and and organisations closely allied to it. So that's that's where they are. But the membership and the parliamentary Labour Party, so all the MPs, are very heavily Remain, and they're they're in some senses the true believers. They're the ones who who would who would be close most closely allied to third way politics, which would say, 
while globalization is a, is a reality, let's do what we can to, to mitigate it, to manage it. So they're, they're really split. And I think it puts them in an extremely difficult position because all of the new, the new members, particularly around Momentum, who are, have remained silent, which is potentially a big problem, not offering that leadership and, and guidance around, around Brexit. It means that you're in this absolutely incredible situation in British politics where the, the person who would be the, the head of the left leave argument and positions, Corbyn, by essentially by accident or by a, a, a process which is is charted in Richard Seymour's book, amongst others, is now at the head of the Labour Party. So he is in an unenviable position of leading a party of Remainers who need to win Leave constituencies, Leave seats. So, yeah, I don't envy. I don't envy envy the position that Corbyn's in, and this partly explains the inability that the or the the challenges which he and the Labour Party have faced in articulating a clear Brexit position because you have people like Keir Starmer who are saying we're going to have a second referendum they need to keep it ambiguous and make sure that they appeal to to both to both sides the potential leave voters and the, and the remain members so I I think there's a possibility I'm not sure how I mean it's quite slim potentially of a genuine realignment that the Labour Party could could split over this and could find itself in a very serious electoral position because there's something something has to give essentially between the remain and, and the leave elements of of the party and i mean that's one of the things about brexit is that it's cutting across to a greater or lesser extent existing party alignments so you're seeing a whole set of of things emerge via careful attention and explanation and whose consequences are underdetermined one of the difficulties of being a commentator on the left, being both supportive of the broad Corbyn project, but also you know trying to keep it accountable and trying to assess the moves and judge to see whether they're successful. One of the problems there is that you don't kind of know what's going on behind the scenes, do you? You see these you see these very carefully crafted, often conciliatory public statements, and I, one of the dynamics that I've noticed lately is that you have this kind of good cop, bad cop scenario that's playing out between Corbyn and John McDonnell, his right-hand man, the uh, shadow chancellor of the exchequer, wherein you know Corbyn will stake out a more kind of a radical sort of abstract position. And then McDonnell will sort of jump in with a more conciliatory, pragmatic position. And I noticed that, that playing out with respect to the this uh, this phony anti-Semitism, you know, row inside of the party and outside of the party. I, I, I noticed that dynamic, good cop dynamic playing out between Corbyn and McDonald there. But there's no doubt that there's something similar going on, perhaps in reverse with respect to Brexit between the two of them. Corbyn is sort of playing it soft, saying, you know, only that he would live up to the, ex- to the uh, dictates of the manifesto that was democratically approved by the, by the membership, which gives him a lot of wiggle room. In a sense, but then you have McDonald sort of pushing full steam ahead, frenetically pr- producing these kind of policy papers, and you know he's edited a collection called Economics for the Many, which is quite good in some in many respects, sort of staking out what would be the kind of pragmatic strategies of a left exit. You'd need things like capital controls. You would need to talk about immigration reform. You'd need to talk about bringing production back home and managing the domestic economy in a much more kind of organic and holistic way to integrating co-ops into the process 
of production and, and, and distribution. So talk to us a little bit about those policies and how you see them going forward, how they are or are not successful. Again, another astonishingly big question, but I like to ask, I like to, I like to sort of shoot big for the grand finale. So bring it home for us. I think that's a really good question. And the policy discussion is, is undeniably important, but it's almost that we haven't got to that stage yet. And I want to make a distinction here between Lexit and Brexit, full stop. So Lexit is the is the idea that Brexit is valuable because it instrumentally it's instrumentally valuable because it leads to a greater set of options for a potential Corbyn government. Things which would have been illegal under EU state aid rules are now possible. So we should leave the EU because it allows Corbyn's government to nationalise more things. And this Lexit position has been attractive to some on the British left, and I think there's some potentially some value to it. But personally, I think it's more important as socialists to defend Brexit as progressive full stop. And I think this is an an argument that you don't often hear, but a really important one. And that's that Brexit is a an increase in democracy. It's a a movement away from this this member state constraining model of, of the state and of bringing back to national political, uh, national democratic contestation, political decisions. And that's why Brexit is progressive full stop and not conditionally progressive on whether we get a Corbyn government, whether we get a, a May government, whatever. We should be defending it and looking to extend it and having a deeper process of democratic renewal, no matter who ends up becoming the uh, the government, because we have to look at this long term and think, well, we might we might not win every single political struggle, but that's what we're in it for. We're in it for widening the scope of the political decisions that we can make. So my final, final question was going to ask your very quick take on these, you know, crafty, I'll call them very charitably, proposals that have emerged in the wake of uh, Theresa May's government's inability to come up with any kind of Brexit proposal that will pass muster in Brussels and in Britain. But things like the Norway Plus model or, you know, the Common Market 2.0. But I suppose uh, you've really preempted those questions in a way with that uh, fantastic answer that you just gave there. But the, sign us, let us sign off here on some of your quick takes about where where you see those going. It looked like Norway Plus was going to, to was gaining some steam there for a time. Even on the left, you saw people like obviously Paul Mason speaking favorably about it. I saw a couple people over at Navarra Media speaking somewhat favorably about it. Talk to us a little bit about what it would mean for this quote Brexit to go through, but but yet you know Britain remaining in the common market in a in a constrained sort of way. What what's the prospect of of, of those types of uh, things going down? I think it's been interesting how a lot of the debate has been around trade deals and this plus plus or that plus minus, and I think that's missing the point really to a certain extent because. My take is, is is essentially this, that on the left, our starting point should be defending the fullest possible Brexit that we can have, full Brexit, clues in the name. There's three reasons for this. One is that, you know, there's a democratic point. This was voted for. This was, you know, we should be carrying it through. Secondly, working class support for this, for, for Brexit. So leaving the customs union, leaving the single market, leaving the jurisdiction of the ECJ. This has staunch support and the work and working class support for this seems to be unwavering. And the third, that being dragged into these discussions too often, it's of a part with the, with the technocratic form of politics, which 
essentially like came to fill that void that we talked about earlier. So the technical details, you know, I'm not just, just dismissing them all, but um, since it was the last question, I wanted to make a more polemical point. Um, I hope, hope that's like, okay. Um, sure, sure. Yeah. So I think it's, you know, not not to get too bogged down in in the the technical details and to go back to the to the principles and to to reconnect the left not to the instrumentally correct or most beneficial at that point in time solution but to say actually it's all about looking for chances for working class people to have control over their lives and i think that's that's the the thing to to return to so you know i guess to give a bit more of a, a direct answer to the question yeah leaving the i think the only form that's not brexit in, in name only might that possibility might have might have have gone there's a really strong argument that democrats should be realistic and say may's deal as terrible as it is that's what leaving the eu looks like the process of of getting out of the eu is is in some senses gradual because that was the process of, of coming into the eu but it's just that in reverse well put i, I like that answer uh, because it wasn't the one that i tried to get you to give and, yes. uh, you know, I, I like that. Uh, some, I try to keep my provocations more general, but that one was very pointed and uh, you resisted the easy way out. And I, I like that. I enjoy that. I myself, you know, I, again, you know, I, I tend to bend the stick in the other direction, not in disagreement with the project of the full Brexit, but just sort of emphasizing the more kind of technical policy oriented aspects. But I really have enjoyed this conversation. You've you forced me in the in the other direction, which is to think about this kind of more systematically and and you know, theoretically and politically in the longer term of of these uh, what, what's going to be an intractable class conflict inside of Europe and of course across uh, the global economy. It's something that we here in the United States are just as trapped inside of, and we're desperately trying to see our way out. And uh, yeah, I've enjoyed this conversation very much. Any any parting words uh, for the folks? Um, yeah, I think we didn't talk about internationalism that much, but I mean, it goes without saying that this is one of the reasons why I'm I'm so anti EU because it puts forward this phony cosmopolitanism in place of true internationalism, which is which is socialism. So it's a nice, you know it's a bit of a call just to for anybody who's thinking about the EU, any listeners of, of the podcast, to think well actually. What are the limits? What are the limitations on this this supposed internationalism that it's putting forward? Because I think we're, you know, I'm I'm assuming that a lot of these debates are, uh, or this these comments are aimed at people who who want to extend socialism, who want to sort of form a democratic socialism of some form or other. So it's um, it's important that we that we stick to our stick to our guns, stick to our principles on this, and we, you know, we put our faith in in the working class, and we, you know, we see what happens. A very optimistic message coming from, uh, <laughs> you know, in the midst of a commentariat that has been all gloom and doom for yeah. some months. Uh, much appreciated. And I think, again, bending the stick in that direction is an incredibly useful exercise for us. So member of the full Brexit, co-host of Alpha Bunga Bunga podcast. Everybody definitely check that out. George Hoare, thanks so much for joining us on Dead Punnett Society. Thanks for having me. And that concludes today's episode of Dead Pundit Society. Thanks so much, everybody, for listening in. Thanks again to George Hoare and the full Brexit team. They've got a fantastic website. I'll link to it in the show notes. People should definitely check that out. There are a number of policy papers, but they're short and very readable. You can read all of them in, I think, five minutes or less. 
uh, each individual paper that is in five minutes or less. As I said, there are 20 or more issues that they cover in depth, giving you really great talking points on each one. So agree or disagree, the full Brexit project is a model for how socialists should approach you know, complex topics such as Brexit. So whether you agree or disagree, you should definitely learn from it in either direction. Anyway, we definitely discussed a lot of complex and controversial topics on today's episode. So head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and become a member of DPS. And you will have access to an exclusive members-only forum wherein you can discuss the issues that were raised in this show and all of the others. Additionally to that, you'll have access to our B-sides, which are coming out every other week. And if you so choose, you can also subscribe to the Weekly Rundown, which comes out every other week as well. We also have a Working Class Heroes tier, where we are encouraging people to donate one hour's worth of their wage per month. And that will grant you access to our book club. Our book of the month this month is Nikos Poulansas' State Power Socialism. And that event is this coming Sunday. We're going to have a live seminar-style event wherein we can talk about the book, the themes, the topics, and we can talk about how it relates to our political moment and the work that we do in the real world. So check out the Patreon. We desperately need your support to keep this thing going, and uh, we appreciate all of our patrons past and present. Until next week, Dead Pundit, out. (laughs) Oh, this new crazy mother...